we're back and we're talking death this time death in the happiest well nicest most thought-provoking and humorous sense we're talking terry pratchett's depiction of death um i'm colin cairns as i am most of the time i'm joined as she as i'm she is i'm pretty sure all of the time but i don't know for definite rose fortune um and we have a special guest with us today Hailing from deepest, darkest Wexford via deepest, darkest Crumlin. <laughs> Please welcome long-time Discworld aficionado and sometime friend and colleague of both me and Rose, Stephen Hill. Who you might remember from... Yeah, I don't, I don't remember from. Oh I don't no, know. I've got, sorry, I I've know. got nothing. I, I haven't pulled up enough demographics on any listeners you have to see what, you know... What they, Street corners. Yeah. <laughs> Whichever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're, we're dealing with Mort this time, the fourth book in Terry Pratchett's Discworld. Um, and uh, before we launch into any of our analysis and discussion about it, I suppose it's probably best to give anyone who hasn't read the book before or hasn't reread it in a long time a quick rundown of the plot. So basically, uh, Mort is a terrible farmer, or rather, he's the he's the terrible farmer to be of a of a son of a farmer, owned to a multitude of knees and too much book learning. His father decides to hire him out as an apprentice, so they travel together to a hiring fair. At the last stroke of midnight, Mort is finally hired by none other than Det himself on a pale white horse named Binky. Mort's training is going well enough, so Det lets him go out on his own for the first time. Of the three souls he has to collect, the first two go fine, and the third one, somewhat more cataclysmically, uh, rather than ushering the Princess Kelly's soul into the great beyond, he rescues her and lets her live on. Reality has some problems with this. The timeline starts to correct itself, causing some confusion. The flag is flown at half-mask and black bunting is ordered, and Kelly finds it difficult for her servants to remember her long enough to serve her a meal. She and Mort approach a wizard named Ig- Igneous Cutwell for his help. Meanwhile, Death is enjoying his days off, and fun, quote-unquote. With more taking on more of the work and more of Death's traits, his brown eyes are becoming blue and his voice is changing. I don't know how much of a Death-like tone I managed to get across that, but imagine I just said it in all caps. Um, <laughs> like, the, like the slamming of coffin lids. Mort and Death's daughter, Isabel, discovered that Death's servant, Albert, is actually Alberto Malik, wizard and founder of Unseen University. With reality in danger, Albert returns to UU to have the wizards perform the rite of Ashkent, which summons Death, currently working in a cafe, uh, and the more deathly parts of Mort. Mort and Isabel interrupt the barely dare Princess Kelly's coronation to try and save her, ending with them taking Kelly and Cutwell back to Death's domain. There, Death fires Mort, the two of them duel for his freedom. Death eventually spares Mort's life and sends him back to the disc. Death also has a quick word with the gods who allow Kelly to remain alive and be queen while Mort becomes Duke of Stowhalet and marries Isabel. And that is the end of that. But it's just the beginning of our podcast. Oh, I thought we were done. Yeah, yeah. We, oh, we, just, okay. we just come on here and we, we, <laughs> we, we read recount it. the plot. People just go to Wikipedia. Yeah. They don't need to come to this at all. Well, just, just audio Wikipedia. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, Good description. Uh, our Wikipedia. <laughs> that, no, that doesn't sound right at all. Um, <laughs> so I, I suppose the, the first thing to uh, probably warrant discussion is Steve. You um, you requested specifically to come on when we done Mort, and just um, why why in particular uh, the the forty one one of the forty two Discworld books now? Uh, what what made you choose Mort? 
it's hard to call really I don't know what it is about Mort that I absolutely love but I just think it is the best I think it's just because the story is so tight and it's like a self-contained story and but it actually it feeds into the rest of the series without not in a not in a messy way you know mm-hmm. it's there's like there's no like tendrils there's not nothing's left hanging out of this story it's all tied up quite nicely while still feeding it into the rest of the series and I just think the story is brilliant yeah. I love it so much it's a real coming of age story which is great I don't think you actually get that many coming of age stories in Discworld do you um no I suppose I suppose Nightwatch is kind of one for young Sam yeah and um, in a way that's yeah, like, that's like yeah, a postmodern yeah. coming but of it, age it's, story it's not told from the point of view of the, <laughs> well it is told from the point of view of the person that comes from age but when he is well and truly of age hmm. um and and to like some extent equal rights is not really like I was a, thinking like, like an S kind of matures but she doesn't fully um Actually, I did read a, a comment by a guy who blogs under name Vacuous Wastrel, who does some pretty good <laughs> writing on Terry Pratchett, and he did point out uh, that if Mort and Equal Rights were released today, it'd probably be marketed as young adult books. Probably, which, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, Rose, what were your first impressions of Mort? Uh, actually, when, when, when would it have been like? I hadn't read this since I think first year of secondary school. Had you frequently reread it since you had first, or had it been years? It had been years. Yeah. I definitely reread it at least once after I read it the first time, but it's been years since then. Okay. So I would have read it in secondary school, mm-hmm. probably reread it in secondary school, and then just held it in very high regard forever after that, but never went back to it. Yeah. So this was great. Yeah, yeah. Um, guys, I want you to be all very quiet for a moment, because if we can, I'm going to edit in the soundtrack to Quantum Leap. Because, <laughs> because that's what this is. It's a Quantum Leap from the first three Discworld books. It's going to say, I think this is just like phenomenal I think it's uh, you know so I feel like he's juggling a lot more in this than he did the, the previous tree like uh, Color of Magic is a kind of smorgasbord of fantasy parody um, Life Fantastic is essentially that with a plot and he kind of as we discussed when we talked about Rose he sort of touches on uh, ideas about modernization and tradition um, and Equal Rights he has like he, he kind of does a very broad parallel or um, sort of look for a uh, uh, dialectic like between um you know rural feminine uh kind of like oral learning low culture versus urban masculine you know uh like high, yeah, sort of high learning logocentric culture um but it's it's sort of a really you know broad strokes just like two oppositions meeting whereas this i feel like there's there's so much he's uh juggling with here but sure mm-hmm. we'll get to all that as um as we go through it. Um, one thing I did notice, one thing of the smaller things, is that the transformation of Ankh Morpork from the sort of, um, you know, crazy sword and sorcery realm of adventure to kind of pseudo steampunk, quasi Victorian, like city that is a parody of all cities that it will later <laughs> be, particularly in the City Watch novels, continues here in that most of the, I think, when Death uh, go, and Mort go to get a curry. And I just thought you wouldn't yeah. you wouldn't get a curry in the color of magic sank more work. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, actually. Yeah. So yeah. Um, he does that really well, actually, with a couple of choice phrases. And like one of them that I have written down is just I absolutely lo- loved it so much. It was. Um, Angmore Pork as full of activity, industry, bustle, and sheer exuberant busyness as a dead dog on a termite mound. <laughs> Which I just thought, is yeah. just, that just nails it. I love actually how any time Terry Pratchett describes anything, he goes straight in for the flaws, but makes them really 
animated and like yeah. really intriguing and like there's also a bit in the book where he talks about how how many different foods are in Angmore pork and it it serves the story but it also gives you a really good idea of the huge multiculturalism how it is the center mm-hmm. uh, like and like Angmore pork is always the center of all the dish well not all the dish world books but it is it's the capital and you always get that sense mm-hmm. especially in this one anyway yeah yeah um the the other thing with regards to moving the disc world forward, I thought was that uh, we were talking last time about how equal rights was this proto Rid Cully era on Senior mm. University, where yeah. like they don't seem quite as cutthroat as Life Fantastic or as they later will be in Sorcery, uh-huh. and uh, it's somewhat similar here. Like you get you get your first glimpse of first glimpse of Rincewind, you know, since uh, Life Fantastic, and um, he's just a. Uh, you know, he's just as working as the librarian's assistant and kind of on senior university is presented in a really sort of funny kind of, you know, like they're just these complacent, self-important guys. Like they're, they're terrified when Albert comes back and tries to kind of instill a bit of discipline and a bit of hard work into them. Mm-hmm. It did get me thinking that a possible piece of kind of fan wankery to explain why Unseen <laughs> University goes from being relatively benign in equal rights and from what we see of it in Mort to the cutthroat place of sorcery is Albert's little return and that kind of you know gives <laughs> give, it gives the wizards a, a jolt and you know kind of lights a fire under them I love um, that yeah. that's so believable yeah. that makes but, complete sense I love Unseen University and this all of a sudden mm-hmm. it's exactly like that it's exactly like the Unseen University that comes up later with the crazy wizards running around and the <laughs> when Albert is in the circle with death and he's like oh I, if you pass me my staff I can still get out of this <laughs> yeah. and I can stay here sorry pardon what? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah I think it's in um, I don't want to jump ahead but it is in one of the later books I think it's Weird Sisters but uh, there is an Arch-Chancellor in that that I always mistake as Ridicoli or is it yeah, I think it's uh, you think the cut angle and equal rights. Is, it could be, yeah. yeah he, he's, he's very he's very similar to Ridicoli but mm-hmm. it's not actually him and mm-hmm. like you're right it is like a proto- uh, really mm-hmm. at the time strange I, I like the way that Terry Pratchett find, is finding his feet but he does it in a really uh, enjoyable way the whole way through these books yeah, <laughs> first yeah. couple of books uh, it's while we're on on Senior University I think it's it's struck me that uh, when we done Life Fantastic and we, we talked about the, the climax to it and I said like it would it would probably be remembered a lot more fondly if Rincewind had have actually turned the corner and it would be remembered as this kind of because at the life and last again, it's on quite a, an optimistic note where he's like, you know, oh, I'm going to re-enroll. And mm-hmm. for all you know, the only reason he hasn't been able to become a wizard is because he's got this, had the great spell mm-hmm. on his head and now that's gone. So it's like, oh, maybe now he can become a wizard. And uh, you find out that he, you kind of find out implicitly that he can't in a really uh, like casual, you know, sort of um, like unforegrounded way here when Albert shows back in Unseen University and the focus is more on Albert being there and Rincewind's the assistant to the librarian and you just kind of realise, oh, he hasn't actually got that far since we've last left him. He's an assistant to an ape, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, which, like, is kind of... Uh, I, I only I only sort of realised it reading in order that uh, what that must have been... I know it might have been kind of jarring for some readers reading it for the first time where they're imagining, oh, Rincewind's probably, a, you know, he's probably a really good wizard now. And <laughs> then you drop back in with him and it's like, no, he ain't never getting better. Yeah, and he has to justify his position to Albert as well. It's like, yeah. oh, yeah, I handle the bananas. It's a really important job. Oh, no. Um, yeah, it's, it struck me reading it as well that we, uh, like... 
a lot of people, a lot of things I've read have said like, oh, this is where the the Discworld, you know, really starts. The first book is him kind of, you know, feeling his way around and obviously he continues to do that throughout the entire series. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. But, you know, this is where he kind of gets to the Discworld we know. Yeah. And I thought one, one thing that sort of, uh, like, element that comes into in this that reoccurs is that, like, the for me, the, the prototypical Pratchett, Pratchett protagonist is someone who sort of stands and thinks apart from the society they're in, but is also like fundamentally tied to that society. So you have Vimes, who you know, saying guards, guards doesn't get caught up in the, the you know craze for the monarchy, mm-hmm. and uh, later true is just true. His relentless kind of cynicism is um, you know is like always suspicious of people, and he's kind of he's outside of the aristocrats who moves in through. He moves in their circles through Sybil, but he's also outside of most of the normal people by being a duke. But at the same time, he's integral to Ankh Morpork because he's the commander of the watch, and you know, so he's tied to it even while feeling somewhat removed from it. Mm-hmm. And Granny Weatherwax is, you know, similar in that, like, she's, uh, and, and all the witches to a certain extent, in that they're like crucial parts of how their societies work, but their role in making those societies work sets them apart from everyone else in it mm. uh, and and then you kind of have like you have even one off protagonist like Tepic is obviously uh, important to you know he's the, the the king of the jelly baby but because he was educated outside of it he's just thinks completely differently than everyone else there and it struck me that reading this Det is the or example of that because he is intrinsic to all life he's not just intrinsic to one community or you know like one kingdom or uh whatever like one society he's intrinsic to everything in the disc world but is fundamentally apart from it because he's the only death and he's the only one and that's like um that sort of weird balance of kind of like responsibility and alienation and sort of like doubting if what you're doing is the right thing because you can never like really feel close to the people you're doing the right thing for is something that like comes up in a lot of different ways in you know future books and like this is this is probably where he uh you know this is the first real example of him uh exploring that to any great degree that's really true actually <laughs> death is probably the best example of okay that exact situation mm-hmm. But of having this weird sporadic bursts where he goes, actually, I'll ingratiate myself into yeah, yeah. into the society that, that I'm outside of. Like in this, he tries to suddenly start identifying with humanity mm-hmm. and having fun and, and drinking alcohol and getting a job. And then you have the exact same thing come up again in Reaper Man, where he, where he goes off for a while and he puts his duty to one side and he goes off and he gets another job and he yeah. starts identifying and having relationships with people. Mm-hmm. What a strange character to be, <laughs> to be trying to I... identify with humans so much. I always found uh, death to be the personification. Of, like the one thing I love about Terry Pratchett's writing is that he bas- he basically writes uh, straightforward uh, fancy novels, s- establishes their rules, and then gleefully breaks them all. Mm-hmm. And I think like with death, he absolutely gets that perfect because you know he describes him so many times as this leaden character, you know, who's got all the knowledge of the universe who also likes kittens you know? <laughs> he does yeah. everything like it's he breaks his own rules because like death can't be that way but he is and it's just so charming it just it, it do, he doesn't make sense as a character yeah. but that's fine it just it works it's so charming the uh, the kittens that that bit at the start when he pulls the, the dead kittens out to do mm. well is, is it's like really kind of touching and you know disturbing and it's just wonderful way of giving you this indication that like 
this is the shit he has to deal with, you know, like he, he sees all the, you know, all the probably the worst of, of humanity uh, in in his job. And I thought that was when I, when I was talking earlier about how I thought Mort was just this huge leap up from the others. One thing I had is that like there's so many like small, touching, slightly moving moments sprinkled throughout it. Whereas I feel like uh, um, when we done Life Fantastic, I talked about how the the, the parting of Rincewind and the Two Flower really took me by surprise. It was really moving me, mm. um, and and it did. But it's like that comes at the end of the whole book. You know, the whole book, and to a certain extent, the Color of Magic as well. Built like you know is like uh, is sort of acts in service to this moment of them leaving each other when you read it. And kind of equal rights, you have like some sort of emotional pathos with um, Granny going to rescue Esk, and they're there in the kind of sick room with Esk and Simon unconscious, and they don't know if to wake up. But again, that's that's like you know the kind of like emotional finale of the book. Whereas Mort manages to get a lot of bits throughout it that you know I just become don't need a whole book to support how touching they are. Like the, the one that really hit me is um, is at the job fair when Death approaches Mort and his father. Well, for one, that that whole bit with Mort just feeling useless and not knowing, like you know, not knowing like why. And it's that's like oh, he's trying to offer him something and he just like doesn't want it. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, oh, it's it's lovely. But then the bit when Death comes is um, for one. Uh, I'm just gonna grab your copy here to find it. Quote for one, it's um, wonderfully uh, like really really funny the the. The combination, like Pratchett's great combining the the mundane and the surreal, like the the just that conversation Det and Lesik have. Like Lesik mm. asks, uh, "Where did you say your business was?" Said Lesik. "Is it far?" "No further than the thickness of a shadow." Said Det. "Where the first primal call was, there was I also. Where man is, there am I. When the last life crawls under freezing stars, there will I be." Ah," said Lesik. You get about you get about a bit then. You know, <laughs> That's how I describe Crumlin whenever people ask me where it is. <laughs> You're close. <laughs> but um but I mean no, like I was laughing out loud reading it. I noticed also those um those descriptions that gives himself are totally badass. But, <laughs> but all of that that last bit then when you have more leaving Lesick and he knows he might be like he doesn't know he might be leaving him forever. But he knows Lesik doesn't know because he can he can just see Death as an Undertaker mm. and a bit where he's trying to like think of all the things he wants to say to him, but he can't find the he can't find the ways to express it because to him it's a really big goodbye. But because Lesik can't see what's going on, it isn't really that big of a goodbye to him. I, I found that like tremendously moving and just um, like obviously none of us have ever been apprentice apprentice apprenticed to Death, <laughs> but uh, like like that feeling of kind of being at emotional cross purposes with people where you're in a moment where you feel that it means much more to you than it does to the other person or you know mm-hmm. uh, like is feels really relatable and just like really you know he depicts it very kind of um uh, very accurately mm. I'm not sure about that though because I mean I always found that to be a little I mean, it's it's a solid point you're making, and I think there's an argument for it. But I always just find that just be a very casual sort of farewell, and I, it's one of the few parts of the book that I think is a little lacking. I just think that uh, when he leaves, it just it feels a little. I don't know. I I, I didn't find it that emotional, to be honest. Right. And like, I love this book. I love everything about it. But that's just one scene that I, just, I don't. To be honest, I don't think it's really an important part of the story. 
but that could just be me. No, I don't think it, I don't think it is a hugely important part. Other than it kind of you know it's part of Mort's uh, like mm. you know growing up. But that's what I think is the important part is that this is a book where you know like all it, it you know it doesn't need the really important moments of the story to be the moving ones. It can do mm. it in small mm. places as well. Well, let's read the passage out and let the listeners decide. <laughs> um, Mort looked down at his father's face. He wanted to say a lot of things. He wanted to say how much he loved him, how worried he was. He wanted to ask what his father really thought he'd just seen and heard. He wanted to say that he felt as though he stepped on a molehill and found that it was really a volcano. He wanted to ask what nuptials meant. What he actually said was, Yes, thank you. I'd better be going. I'll try and write you a letter. Um, so it's funny as well, but I just think it, like, mm. that, like particularly with goodbyes, it's, you know, it's very hard to, like, you know, I think in real life, um, even when both you and the person you're saying goodbye to realize the momentousness of it it's very hard to like actually uh mm. you know give it the gravitas that you feel uh it deserves in your head there's a great line right after that as well where mort says i'll try and write you a letter and his dad has to say yeah i'm sure there'll be somebody passing by who might be able to read it to yeah, us yeah. Like, oh, that establishes distance so well mm-hmm. yeah. like even if he was going to an apprentice down the road the next town over or something you know that that would still be a small goodbye yeah because yeah. there's no communication there there's no yeah, way absolutely. but this is such a massive goodbye absolutely it's a, it's a really good point actually that yeah even if it was just like a small thing it would be bigger than we would think because of lines of communication mm. I think as well that um the the like literacy thing with Mort uh, being quite you know almost like like too clever for his own good or for his role mm. in life it's, it's he's very similar to Esk in that way like they both come from these yeah um yeah, they were just like Im- impractically intelligent children in rural families. That's you know, so they were kind adults. of get this call to bigger things. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and I I said when we were talking about equal rights that one of my, you know, one of the drawbacks of for me was that Esk was a bit of a Mary Sue and she kind of got a, a little too easy in the book. And I, I feel that like a big improvement here is that Mort doesn't like mm. you know his kind of his his intelligence and his bookishness and his curiosity serve him well as it goes on. But you really also get the feel of how like you know how much of a hindrance they almost seem at first, but you know, uh, and then like how, how it also means he kind of panics in other situations. Like another lovely movie scene is that scene with him, with the witch. Um, oh yeah. Who's, who's dying. Yeah. And then Granny and she's, something. yeah, she sort of talks him through it. Mm. Uh, and, and, and he can't believe, you know, um, like he's like how he can't believe that she's just ready for death. And, uh, and it had added pathos when you think that, of course, years later, sadly when, Terry Pratchett was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He was looking into assisted suicide um, and the kind of the, the right to die in dignity. And you have the witch giving a speech about like, oh yeah, like you fear death at first, but then when your body begins to break down on you, it it's not so hard to say goodbye to it anymore. Mm. Um, and yeah, that's like kind of kind of adds carries a lot of added weight. That uh, that's one of the scenes in the book that I think has a lot of emotion behind it, mm-hmm. and it's 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 really subtle. But um, I think it serves an even bigger purpose in the story to highlight the loneliness of Death himself as a character. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, even when uh, Mort is becoming the new Death, he still he, he nearly always has people around him. Like, he's, he's becoming this distant character, but he's still supported by people. And there's one line uh, towards the end of the book where he's talking about Death. I can't remember what exactly... I can't remember whereabouts it is. But he's saying, "Oh yeah, death never receives an invitation. He ne- he's always alone, and in what was it in the eternal party of the world? Death is always in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He must be the loneliest creature in the universe." And I actually think that 
that sentence is kind of the key of the entire story because mm-hmm. as good as this is as a coming of age story for Mort I think the main story is actually about death learning to deal with being alone in a way yeah because yeah. if you think of the symbolism like if the entire story at this is something I actually want to put to both of you guys. There's a bit near the start where um, Mort's dad is saying, you know what happens when an apprentice comes on? Sometimes he marries him off to a daughter yeah. and he gets that. And I'm kind of thinking, was that death's intention the entire time? Because that is eventually what happens. And I'm thinking, because Isabel was so upset living in um, death's domain... It was like, Death has a family of sorts, Mm -hmm. but it's an unhappy family. But he eventually learns to give up an unhappy family so that the family can become happy. Yeah. And he can become associated with, like, you know, risking a possible friendship as opposed to an unhappy family. You know, Mm -hmm. he's kind of dealing with loneliness in that way. What do you guys think? (laughs) Well, I agree. But I think that Death himself kind of hints at that at one stage. He tries to wink at Mort. Yeah. Oh, like a, yeah. A blue light flaring in his eyes for a second. Mm. He's like, oh yeah, and, and you know, she'll have all this one day. <laughs> he says something like, um, like, uh, you two have been fighting a lot and Albert's told me what that means. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the idea that like, that's only, you know, that's only kind of like insight to, uh, to like, you know, like sex and romance and stuff. It's just like, you know, sixty-something-year-old celibate wizard <laughs> like lived in a timeless void for two thousand years. There's a great, li- <laughs> but he never doubts that. Like, oh, you know, I know. Um, There's a great line just before that where um, Mort, was, Mort is trying to tell Death about how he messed up the job, and he said, "Oh, there's no light at the end of the tunnel." And then when Death says that, he says, "Oh, there was a light at the end of the tunnel, and it was a flamethrower." <laughs> <laughs> it's like that's great. <laughs> yeah, I, I, to, to I definitely think. Um, like that had the intention of marrying Mort off to Isabel. Mm. I what I don't know is how planned, how far he planned the apprentice thing to go. Had like Mort's you know mess up with, with Kelly not happened, because mm. it's sort of left ambiguous. Like obviously he you know he, he leaves Mort to do the job when he goes off to uh, find himself. Yeah, <laughs> for for lack of a better term. But I, I like it's like it's kind of ambiguous whether he was going going to go into full time retirement. Or whether, like, he was just going to, you know, the advantage of having Mort would, uh, would give him a few days off. Um, uh, and, and whether just the fact that Mort messed it up meant that he kind of, you know, he dismissed the plan of ever taking an apprentice and mm. it never comes up again. It's sort of, uh, like, it's a bit unclear what his, what he thought the end game of Mort doing the job was mm. going to be. Yeah, I wondered when, um, when Mort takes the day off and Death is like, is it for a grandmother's funeral? Because I'd know. (laughs) (laughs) I felt like Death got the idea of taking time off from Mort there. And if if that's the case, Mm. then he hadn't planned his finding himself Mm -hmm. trek across Europe. Well, I don't think that was planned at all, really. Mm. But I think um, just when you were talking about the the emotional moments in Terry Pratchett, it feeds into this. And I think it is the sweetest moment in the entire disc because it really humanizes Death. At the very end when Mort says, you know, if you're ever looking just for a few days off and death and the way it's phrased, it just sounds like he's eternally grateful for him saying that. He says, I'll think about that. Thank you. Just like that. It's like, Mm -hmm. you really just, you got to feel for death at that point. He's just so, he's so adorable (laughs) with his big skeleton face. (laughs) 
Stephen Hill has outed himself as a necrophilia. <laughs> this is appointment listening, people. Um, actually, Terry Pratchett used to say that he would occasionally get letters from people who were terminally ill who would tell him that when they died, they hoped death was like the way he described. And he said that would just cause him to look off into the distance for a long time. Which I imagine um, it's, it's a pretty heavy thing to hear about your own work. I hope for his sake. Death is like how he describes. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Death in this is interesting, actually. I know we talked before about mortality and whether this kind of establishes reincarnation as like what happens next or if it's kind of set in stone, what happens mm-hmm. in the afterlife. But it's so not. And this is the best book for that because it's like, you know, there is reincarnation with the abbot Lobsang. Yeah. But then there's the witch who decides to just stay where she is and become part of the universe mm-hmm. and then there's the other one that goes off across the desert or, or wherever he went yeah you know so it's so personal then in this yeah yeah and i think that does outright state that you know they'll just get what they believe um and the whole like the thing that will come up you know it'll be a, a huge part of this girl as it goes on that like sort of belief shaping it mm. is really you know i think uh probably like stated very clearly for the first time here i thought a nice part was when mort is going through the tesortian pyramid and he talks about the tesortians believing that like these demons or something would come to life to guard the pyramid at night mm. and he says all oh, they will because they believe that um mm. and at the same time you have the nice parallel where he doesn't realize the effect belief is having on him that he is becoming like at that stage he hasn't realized how more like that he is becoming because people have these ideas about death and now by default that's him so he is becoming like that mm. um but yeah yeah bits like that and i think yeah that does just basically say to more you know people kind of get what they get what they think they'll get um that like that'll uh you know they'll play a huge part in uh, like hogfather most obviously in small gods but like so many Discworld books going forward and it's here where it's actually yeah it's actually stated um mm. I think uh, I really I really like this book for uh, the view that uh, Terry I'm just going to call him Terry now because it's like we're buds um, the, like the, he shows a very very accepting attitude towards all religions mm-hmm. I think because he, he he covers everything and he kind of treats all of them equally flippantly you know he makes fun of all of them but he just accepts there's this great line where um, it is when uh, Moore is taking the soul of the witch mm-hmm. and she says something along the lines of uh, w- why death doesn't like wizards and something like, oh yeah, he doesn't like wizards because they are they can see him and they can they know what he's up to. Something like yeah, that. Yeah. And uh, Mort wants to say, so, oh no, that's not true for whatever reason, but he thinks better of it because he realized people need to believe in things. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, there's just there's loads of uh, great little moments where like he references like different par- different religions, and my favorite one, my favorite line, which I mentioned before this that I did not pick up on when I was younger, is near the very start of the book when Death is paying for the curry. Yeah, and Mort says, "Where do you get all these coins?" And he says, "In pairs." And I <laughs> yeah, I never yeah. picked up on like what that meant until this time around. I just thought that is just go for anyone who doesn't know. It's in um, Greek mythology, isn't it? Or, yeah, well, I think I think a lot of yeah in Greek history. It, anyway, yeah. they uh, would put two coins on people's eyes so that they could pay Charon, the ferryman, yeah, yeah. to take them across the river Styx, which would lead them into the underworld. And just thought that's a brilliant line. <laughs> it's so, so good. good. Yeah. And there's another one like, actually. So um, it also makes death seem like a kind of like a 
like um, morbid tooth fairy like in that you know he's taking yeah. the coins like. another little bit in it that I really liked and it's again it's a throwaway thing um, Albert's Oven yeah, has yeah. the name uh, the Little Mullock I don't know if you know that one he um, was the, no no I know he's like he's like a god of was it like greed or rat or something I looked it up the, like, and yeah he, he's, he's just a very vengeful god I can't remember what the religion was but his key thing was that Moloch would have altars in which people would be sacrificed usually by burning ah, I thought that's a lovely lovely ah. little thing well it's not lovely yeah. but it's a lovely <laughs> reference uh, there was what was it there was one more line and this, I don't really have a point with this one but again it's about religion I really liked it it's when uh, he's talking about the river Ankh even an agnostic could walk across it it's like, <laughs> yeah. and there's a nice little nudge towards like you know Christianity as well it's got like all the religions <laughs> that always um, like I mean I think Pratchett says Ankh Moorpork is just is and can be any city mm. but I was, I was like no it's Dublin because you yeah, <laughs> could walk across the Liffey practically <laughs> on the backs of rats <laughs> um, there, there was one point with religion that I wanted to raise up uh, is that um, when, when death goes to the uh, where is it? it's, it's death or mort I think it's mort well, whichever one of them is, it's uh, it goes to the Agatian Grand Vizier and that like lovely exchange where he's trying to poison the the young oh, emperor and yeah. you know, he poisons him. But he, the Agatian, expects it to be like he says something like a black dragon, and he's just like, "No, it's me," you know. And <laughs> I, I wondered about that, like in that, like even though Pratchett builds a book around saying how, like even death himself is shaped by belief and people's conception, that by him being in his sort of default mode. The, the big skeleton he's kind of endorsing like this like particular view of him you know what I mean like mm. like for want of a better term like the western view like like the way they think of him in Ankh-Morpork you know when he shows up in Ankh-Morpork no one's like oh, I never thought you'd be a big skeleton like so it's <laughs> kind of like presumably like that's their idea of death in the way that it would have been for medieval Europeans you know um, uh, but the um, yeah but like you know in, when he goes to uh, when he goes to other places like the Agatian Empire where they have different ideas of what that's, that'll be he doesn't change, so like the kind of the Ant Morpork view is the right one, you know, like um which is is probably like it's I don't know, it's it's probably just a thing just driven by narrative practicality that stuff like death mm. uh, changing shape or coming up with a different shape for him every time he shows up. But it it did it did strike me as a little kind of like a little at odds with the way he portrays belief and kind of uh, you know, things throughout the rest of the books. Like he never really sort of never seems to center one culture and say, oh, this one's got it right and the other ones are, you know. Yeah. Hmm. That's a good point. I, well, I always found, well, at that point it is Mort who shows up yeah. when, he, uh, when he says, I thought you were going to be a big dragon. I always look at Mort as kind of um, a ripple or like, you know, just a, a mistake in the whole death process, obviously. But um, death always, because he seems so compliant with people when he sees them, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he kind of always encourages them to say, Oh, am I going to heaven with like you know my twelve virgins? Says sure, if that's what you believe. Yeah, why not? Yeah, that's yeah. True. yeah, you know he kind of uh, he eases them into it. You know he's he's you know he says there's no justice, there's just me. Mm-hmm. There is just him, but he kind of encourages people to believe what they want to believe. I think Cutwell does a brilliant description of, or he nails it in one bit where he explains it to Mort, mm-hmm. saying you know it's it all it's all down to perspective. You know if uh, Gar saw you creeping around the castle at night he'd shoot you because he thinks you're a thief. You know, in his reality, that's that's completely true. Yeah. You know, you'd be just as dead as if you were a thief. So, you know, in his world, that is 100% mm-hmm. true. So, mm-hmm. you know, interesting commentary on belief. Um, 
Actually, we haven't we haven't discussed uh, Kelly and Cutwell at all. But uh, any 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 general thoughts on them? I've got I've got a couple of notes, but you guys want to shoot? Um, no, you you start us off there. Oh yeah, one thing I did want to ask when I, when I was reading at the uh, the pot summary, which which Rose very nicely um, wrote up. You said how Mort saves Kelly, and that's probably true. But I did wonder reading it that because it's from her point of view and it's in the dark, it's left a little amb- ambiguous whether he didn't just fuck it up and like swing the sky and ended up killing the <laughs> mm. assassin by accident. Yeah. Um, and I uh, like I'm you know I'm fairly sure he done it on purpose because he later sort of has these things about you know think of how good looking she is and the rest, but. Uh, I, I, I like the fact that it's a little ambiguous and did, did it occur to either of you guys that it's possible that he could have just sort of messed it up and is too which I suppose makes Mort even better of you know or I suppose even like kinder of a human being that he didn't decide to save her life he'd done it by accident but then was like mm. oh I can't kill her now <laughs> actually in um, I don't know if you've read it but there's a graphic novel of Mort which no, um, I, I think you've read that haven't you? No, I haven't actually. Oh, okay. Well, there's a graphic novel of it, and the way it's portrayed there, it's strongly suggested that Mort does mess it up. Okay. Because there's a there's a panel at one point where he's just looking at it and like you can see him going, basically making an oops face. Yeah. So like it is strongly implied that he messes it up, but I think that might just be his interpretation because I think it is deliberately left ambiguous. Yeah, yeah. I do. I think I prefer the idea of him just messing it up rather yeah. than um, doing it on purpose. Likewise. Because yeah. that never occurred to me. It never occurred to me that he might have messed it up, and I think because he interrupted the king getting killed the mm-hmm. week before, where he rushed up to him and said, "You're in danger," and and tried to interfere with that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it just made complete sense to me that he would have done the same thing with the. And because he came crashing dramatically through the window, that seemed like a very heroic yeah, start. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But if it's like that in the graphic novel, and if it actually looks like a mistake. That's really interesting. Well, it's whatever you believe, Rose. Yeah, know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> your reality is the one that matters in your reality. <laughs> you could tell us a completely different, like, you know, a, a different book when we're discussing this. We couldn't tell you you're wrong, you know. Did I mention I we wrote might this have, book? We might have you committed. <laughs> I actually wrote gonna, this book. We're going to yeah. have you committed. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did read uh, by, yeah, and he's like reading up in a couple of, couple of like, you know, blogs in her ears about this. That they said they, you know, a lot of people thought it was a bit of a step back in terms of its female representation. That like, yes, and particularly Granny are such like well drawn characters, and Kelly and Isabel are a little blander. But I thought, um, and I know, yeah, it's, it's tough to compete with Granny Weatherwax, mm. even in that kind of proto half nanny og form she's <laughs> in in Equal Rights. Yeah. But I thought it was kind of nifty that like with with Kelly, for instance, you know, Mort, whether by accident or on purpose, saves her. But then after that, when no one is recognizing her, like it's her, she goes. And, like, solves her own, you know what I mean? Solves her own problem. Like, she's the one who goes and, like, okay, I've got to go find a wizard and I'm going to go convince this wizard to help me. You know, she doesn't just sit around and, like, wait for Mort to sort it for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she sort of, like, cajoles slash bullies Cutwell into, like, uh, doing it with her. And, and that whole bit with him, with her going through the, the town, I think it's another, another example of him being able to do more handle more than just one big team or idea with this book like he has a lot of nice bits about like royalty and how they they're how they actually experience the world and how you know how much of a fish out of the water they are uh moving among normal people just in that little passage of her going there um yeah and, and i mean even that's a bit later with the what is it the nodes that they've got to get right for oh yeah for death and uh isabella's that line where she says um no i'm not going to help you you're going to help me because like i'm the one who knows how to do this mm. you know um, so I think they do the two of them do show kind of like uh, 
uh, independence feels real like we're you know fucking like spitballing a rom-com or something They're sassy independent woman but <laughs> they show they show kind of like gumption and like self-determination that like certainly moves them away from just being damsels in distress mm. uh one thing with Yuzuan that regard was, do you think uh, that she like grows up a bit too quick? That you know when we see her at the start and she's really bratty, you know she's like saying to things to more like you'll call me Miss Isabel, and then you know or stuff like that. And um, but and then by the end of the book, she's quite mature and she's sort of a restraining influence on Morph when he is going too far into believing he's death. And like I'm wondering. Did either of you two think there was like too much of a jump there from one to the other? It is a little jarring, all right, yeah. Um, I suppose you can kind of look at it in the way that... The, I, the way I kind of saw it is that the character she is at the end is who she really is, even at the start. But because she's so used to people... Well, I don't know. It, it, do they ever mention anyone who comes to Death's Domain other than Albert or... Is more the first? Yeah, uh, I think he's more or less. Well, Rincewind and Tufa show up briefly. They do show up, yeah. Fantastic, but, but uh, uh, yeah. yeah, she treats them quite differently than yeah, she treats yeah. more. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's quite jarring. It doesn't really make much sense to me because I imagine if she sees someone who is you know human and in there, you'd imagine she'd be you know kind of all over, mm-hmm. which she is in the end. But yeah. well, I don't know about that actually. I it kind of made sense to me, but just because well. For a start, she's 16. Yeah. Perpetually forever 16. That's so, true. So I made allowances the there anyway. Day. Yes. But as well as that, she mentions that she thinks that Mort had been brought in to marry her. Mm. Like she she automatically thinks that that's still the yeah. motive. Yeah. So for somebody that's oh, 16 yeah. and thinks she's being married off to somebody without her mm-hmm. choosing the person and this guy just shows up and she thinks that she has to deal with him, then I think trying to alienate him that way works. And then when he takes he takes the blame for moving the library books around mm. um which kind of gets her him back in her good graces and when he says that he doesn't want to marry her then it's like oh well, you don't want to marry me oh sure then yeah and yeah. that's what i thought the, the change in her personality was was the oh you're not okay, trying to yeah. marry me mm. oh we're good then yeah like, that's how i read it actually on that note that scene where they're trading insults is absolutely <laughs> very dull. good yeah. one of my favorite insults still is at least my chest doesn't look like a toaster what was it, a toast rack in a wet paper bag <laughs> i think that is gold that is one of the best insults i've ever read so like uh like you spend spend your life eating donuts in a closet yeah, <laughs> yeah there's, there's at least some... my legs could stop a pig in a doorway huh they're bandy <laughs> there's some real zingers in there yeah oh, they're great it's a weird book for romance as well mm-hmm. it's a really weird book for romance um that's the that's the one point that i took away from this yeah the one major point is this is a romantic book that sets up a male lead and a female lead and puts them together and puts them through an arc and has them develop and has them get married at the end but it's the most practical romance novel yeah. I've ever read. <laughs> it really is. Even at the very end, you're like, you can see how Mort and the princess are set up in a way. Like, Mort still, like, he, he's, like, enamoured with her in a way. Like, you know, she fills him with passion. But you can see how he sees, like, yeah, but my life with Isabel would be happier, even though I don't feel that way about her at the start now yeah it's it's strange it makes sense but it's so odd <laughs> yeah yeah although it's just it's a sign of him maturing to being able to see that being able to see past just mm. infatuation mm. um i thought it's funny when, when like Kofal kind of implied to be ending up with kelly that yeah. you had like you know equal rights being all about this like wizards like awful you know attitude to women 
and being celibate and then yeah and, and that's sort of played up for like humor here there's a lot of, like uh, i mentioned earlier about it being possibly like you know uh marketed as ya had it been released years later mm. but uh, i don't know if it would have been just for all the sex uh kind of all the yeah. <laughs> <Wizard> <laughs> sex. yeah you know with him like him kind of like just like almost passing out anytime she's wearing anything the slightest bit revealing <laughs> but but by the end of it you know they're kind of uh, they're uh they're they're applied to to be together actually i think the bit's very sweet when he um when he kind of jumps at her in the way the, the elephant and she says what are you doing and he's like oh it's just just my first instinct and she kind of thinks like takes out like a joke of saying like oh well, this this is almost as bad as the elephant being on me or something like him being on top of her it's like she looked at his face and she just couldn't say it mm-hmm. but um but yeah so by the end of it he's he's together with her and it's kind of seeing as like i can't i don't think it's addressed that whether that means he'll still be able to be a wizard or not you know but coming after equal rights it sort of makes sense that it's like you know all the, the progress of the likes of equal rights even if it's not directly referenced here is is sort of implicit in the fact that you have a wizard who can just kind of unproblematically end up in a relationship but then in sorcery which uh reread that we're dealing with next week um, it, it goes it, it goes back the other way where maybe it's a thing particular to Rincewind but you have a lot of like references to Rincewind just being kind of like really sort of uh, you know like just completely incapable of dealing with women and like you know uh, like like conceiving of doing anything with women and you know like kind of yeah all sorts of stuff but again I suppose that's we'll deal with that more at sorcery with the idea of the whole depiction of wizardry taking a leap back to the way it was in the earlier books um yeah it didn't quite make sense that they ended up together i don't know what that means for his being a wizard because there's that moment where the reality isn't closing and mm-hmm. and he makes her a queen he he does the coronation ceremony himself yeah and there's a point where he thinks oh well in my reality things are going to be different because he's thinking about marrying kelly or being with her or yeah. thinking of her as a woman and he specifically says in this reality things are going to be different so I think it's kind of established in one or two throwaway lines mm-hmm. that the celibacy thing is still there. I don't know what that means for him then. Is it 100% established though that they get together? Because I know, I like, I naturally I look at it and think, mm, it's kind of implied, but it's not the way I, I, I think, read it. I think there is a line at the end, um, as well as this line to Mort at the party at the end about him being um, the only one who can, like... Uh... Yeah, but also he has a new title. And it's... Isn't he the vizier? Yeah. No, he's he's the royal recognizer, master of the queen's bedchamber. There you go. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's before. a pretty strong implication yeah. that stuff's going. There's some magic going on in the bedroom in there. Oh, oh yeah, I'll just leave now. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, can we talk about uh, Terry Pratchett's technique? Because there's a few bits of writing in there that are just gold there's one line like I, I, I'm, as I mentioned before I love that um, he sets up rules and then goes right ahead and breaks them mm-hmm. all and there's sometimes where he takes you know very very traditional storytelling tropes and very good storytelling tropes but he still steers it in another direction which is great mm-hmm. and one of my favourites is that it's a sort of a running joke because it happens twice there's a bit where um, Kelly has basically just discovered that she's dead but she's not dead yeah and she's uh, she's impatient about this. I think she says she goes to drum her fingers on the table, but then she found she couldn't. And the yeah. first thing that goes into your head is like, oh my God, her fingers are going through the table. But then it's like, oh yeah, sorry, that's my sandwich there. And he just pulls it away. <laughs> yeah. And then Mort, the same thing happens with Mort when it's implied, oh, he's becoming real and he's going through things. Mm-hmm. And I think he also is tapping his fingers, but he couldn't seem to do it. You're like, oh my God, 
Terry Pratchett tricked us again. Sorry, that's my treacle sandwich. I'll just take that <laughs> yeah, away. Yeah. It's brilliant because it's a trick that he plays on you twice and it works both times. It's so good. I love the way he like takes things like that and he just you know pulls the rug out from under mm-hmm. you. Did you guys notice any other examples like that in it? Um, well, I, I just I noticed a lot of that. Like, it's a really let's just put it. He he shows a lot of versatility and tone in the book. Like, in mm-hmm. that you have to kind of like the coming of age sort of like you know like YA kind of kiss kiss slaps off romance of Morton Isabel you have kind of death's almost existential type journey you have a, like you know like a lot of humour I mean it's 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 really really laugh out loud funny at, mm. at points and then you have bits like the bit where uh, Isabel and Mort are trying to find Albert's book and Albert sneak up on him that's dark it's, yeah genuinely yeah. really really unsettling and kind of scared. it's like a like almost like that, that kind of slasher film feeling of tension mm. of the, you know you know someone's just sneaking up on them there is um, um, in in uh, the graphic novel there it's that part of the book particularly when Morth is challenging Albert with the sword yeah he draws him in such a way that there's one uh, sh- uh, panel where Morth is looking directly out from it and he, he it, there's a shadow over his face but you can see like th- about four lines of light and the way it's done it looks like a skull but an utterly terrifying skull <laughs> and it's really funny to, to see if you look at the very first panel of Mort he's this tiny little scruffy kid yeah. and then you skip to the end and you're like he's this tall terrifying thin creature mm-hmm. it's just oh it's, it's very creepy but that scene in particular where he's challenging Albert I always found it's, it could be played for horror if he wanted it to, but he managed to keep it just light enough that it's not scary. Yeah, well, some of the some of the bits are, are like a, are, you know, kind of really, what you put it, like really uh, foreboding, and mm. so the bit where uh, he says he says he, he kind of implies like uh, uh, something like I I, I know what will happen next, and where is it? Um, oh yeah, yeah, here it is. Uh, there was a pact, said Albert. But there had been the barest gnat song of doubt in his voice. There was an agreement. Not with me. There was an agreement. Where would we be if we could not honour an agreement? I don't know where I would be, said Mort softly. But I know where you would go. Um, mm. And uh, that last line's in all caps. Um, there's actually, on that same page, because I just uh, marked it there, there's a bit where uh, Albert's talking about this new death and the way he describes him would actually put chills in you. Yeah, there. yeah. It's, where the, is it now, is it? It was just there. You should have held that page. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but yeah, I, I do like how like Mort's kind of like stint as death proper when death's gone is quite brief. But yeah. they do have these very foreboding allusions to like how much worse a death that can remember or like that can actually empathize with yeah. all of oh, human yes. injustice, you know, this feelings of injustice actually. and pettiness will be. He says, Albert looked into the blue glow of those eyes and the last of his defiance drained away. For he saw not just death, but death with all the human seasonings of vengeance and cruelty and distaste. And with a terrible certainty, he knew that this was the last chance and Mort would send him back into time and hunt him down and take him and deliver him bodily into the dark dungeon dimensions where creatures of horror would dot, 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 dot. Which they do because the book knows that they're too terrible to even mention. <laughs> Which is like, but so dark. Yeah, yeah. And that, that, that conversation is like as well between... Morton Albert is great in that uh, he said like before like uh, Albert's like almost like the you know the slasher villain sneaking up in them and they're really worried and then over the course of the conversation the power completely shifts mm. to Mort but in a way that like obviously you know you're kind of like 
relating with Morton. Isabel, he wants them to like all. All I want to do is for Albert to help them, and you want them to get that. But by the time Albert is kind of or Mort rather is cowing Albert, you're you don't you, know, you don't like it anymore. You're not you're not exactly yeah. cheering him on at that point. Exactly. Um, I actually love um, that bit where they're in the the stacks, isn't it? That's the way yeah, the books yeah. are kept. And there's a moment where Mort asks Isabel, "Did you go past the books that say Og and Og?" Oh, yeah, yeah. oh no, I didn't go past there. I was too afraid. And I love the way that you don't know, like, the land of death, that, like, it's it's more or less established, it's just a house, and, like, there's some black hills mm-hmm. and stuff, but there is this, it's like the house itself is the foundations of a black hole, because yeah. that could go on forever, and it's just implied that, you know, there's so much more there than than is actually it's there. Tardisian in its dimensions. Mm. <laughs> dimensions. Um, yeah, and, and I like that, like, that's another, again, the way they, the way they allude to the, the terrible you know potential of a of a human death mm. they like they kind of he plays with that thing of like you know oh what's behind even cavemen like what's the beginning of life and it's like well you can see it no you know, just, <laughs> just yanks it back but but and you know it's it's great because it leaves you with that feeling of wonder and of, mm. like you said of the sheer size like a kind of like tunnel of time that is running beneath this house without having to go into all the details and and sort of rob it of that wonder yeah. actually on that note um, you know the way you describe it there it's like yeah it's, it's full of mystery and wonder but Terry Pratchett Terry my, my friend Terry he also manages to play that for laughs in this wonderful moment where they go into the hourglass room yeah. and Mort just looks around and says this place doesn't look big enough and this one this is another great line that I think um, Terry has do you know anything about M-dimensional topography? Uh, no. Well, then I shouldn't aspire to hold any opinions if I was you. In that line, he doesn't have to explain anything. Yeah, yeah. He just says, right, this is why the room is so big. And it's funny as well as, like, you know, disregarding. Like, you don't need to know this. This is on a need-to-know basis. That's fine. It's great. <laughs> um, what did you guys think of the end? I find it very touching. If, if, if nothing else, I, I think it's a really, really touching ending. Sorry, I should clarify that when I mean the end, I mean like like I'm taking it from the kind of finale of like the of like you know oh the so- yeah the yeah duel. yeah of, uh, yeah of like uh, like Morton used to be going to rescue Kelly, then they go to the death place to duel, and then you know you have the the end proper with like Morton used to be as uh, Duke and Duchess of, of I love uh, that I, the the duel in particular I think is just fantastic. I love every like there's. Almost every line of dialogue spoken in that bit is gold. Mm-hmm. I just love it. It's so good. And my favorite bit of that is when Death kicks Morton the crotch because <laughs> that is such a dirty move and it's so different from what you'd expect. Yeah. I love that bit. Sorry, I'm just going to gush now. There's going to be no sense coming out of me. I'm just going to talk how much I love that scene. So you guys should talk instead. <laughs> well, I'm basically the same, really. No, I loved it. It was so tense. Mm. Like. It- the suspense in that scene is so good and it's so difficult I think to write a scene that's all action like that's all yeah, yeah, that's all very, yeah absolutely yeah. but he does it so well and you always know well thankfully there's a scythe and a blade so it's not like the scythe moved the scythe also moved mm-hmm, the scythe. Mm-hmm. so there's some differentiation but it's so well written and do you know what's, it. what's absolutely heartbreaking though about the entire thing is when there's the little bit of dialogue saying, oh no, he wants more to win. Oh, so he's going to let him win. No, no, he wants him to win, but he won't let him win. And it's yeah. like, that, that whole, you know, he wants more to take his place because he's lonely, but he, 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 can't, he can't do that. Yeah. So it's it's so 
crushing. Like, there's going to be no winners out mm-hmm. of this fight, but it's still a really tense fight. It's so good. Just that, uh, like, what, what I would think of uh, as, like, a Vimesian sense of duty, mm. where, you know, it's like, I, I don't want to do this at all, but I have to. Yeah. Um, I know that lovely bit where they take out the two hourglasses for the duel, and it's the first time you see deaths and it's just much bigger and there's no sand and more just grows <laughs> and the nose, nose he's ruined from then actually can I ask you guys what do you think about this as a symbolic act now I know what it means in terms of the narrative but as a symbolic mm-hmm. act because I've been trying to work it out and I'm, I'm not really coming to any conclusions so I'd like to pick your brain on it death you know turns everything around literally when he turns Mort's hourglass yeah. around what do you think of that what can you take from that um, well, would you mean to say that, like, like the rest of Mort's life? And I, I, actually, this is—I've literally just thought of this. So. Okay, great. Okay. But then, if Mort's lifetime is technically running backwards, but he's still aging, the rest of his life is moving him further and further away from the point at which he kind of like would have died fighting death. So, by the end of by soul music, when he dies, and when um, him and death have had a falling out, they won't let him see Susan. That some oh, goes some yeah. way towards explaining that because he's actually really far away from all the development he underwent during this book and how he grew closer to death. Oh wow! That's actually I never would have picked up on that. Oh, I, I well, never, I, I, never have, I never would have either <laughs> until he, he, just, he said that. But I think in terms of like the themes that like uh, Terry Terry's exploring in this, like uh, you know, just the whole you know belief and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the loneliness of death and uh, Mort developing as a character. You know, and he's just basically just turned his life. You know, if you think about it, at the time you're like, "Oh my God, he's going to live!" It's a great thing. But if you think about it, it's just him running backwards. It's actually kind of a grim prospect, isn't it? You know, it's like everything he's learned in life is going to just like fade away. Um, Not literally, but that's kind of the symbolic suggestion. I don't know. I didn't actually take it that way. But I didn't. I also didn't put that much thought into it. See, I, it's only because I think the act itself is so integral to the story. I'm thinking that must mean something else, maybe. But but it's granting more life, is what I took away from it. Is it's death, not taking a soul. It's it's death extending a life, which is the hmm. entire opposite of what death should yeah. and usually does. It's and, him tampering with reality, which is the one thing he's like. He's basically been going the whole way through this, saying you shouldn't do that. So. There's, there's a, a, a sort of time loop and that death can see all time at once so he knows what the future is going to be. So if he's seen himself do this, it's like that makes him that makes it okay for him to do it mm. because he knows he will do it. You know what I mean? Where, yeah. Like he, he can't do it unless he knows he'll do it. Um, the, the, uh, I, I, I loved the duel and I liked the, I, I really liked the kind of confrontation in the, the church where Kelly's getting... Um, Carnated uh, <laughs> and yeah, yeah the, mm. the duke comes in and they have that standoff and uh, again going back to the belief thing. Um, uh, Cookwell's wonderful line about like you know, oh like he says I think it's Mort who says like oh you can't just kill us here in front of everyone. He goes oh no don't don't believe that we're just tr- yeah. trampled by a rampaging elephant. It's remarkable you know. Um, but I, I did have a few uh, issues when that like you have the the symbolism of Mort and death knocking over all the other lifetimers and people randomly dying and then like yeah. in some of them like mm. I think like you know Yusufel tries to catch some of them and you, you see that the people get miraculous reprieves from death which like adds a lot of stakes and thematic thematic weight to their duel yeah. but it also seems like it runs contrary to like the 
big part of the plot in the book is based on more to kind of uh, basically def- like defying either intentionally or intentionally the life Kelly's lifetimer that is you know by not taking her life and that's completely rewriting reality and I'm like shouldn't all of this be doing the same thing mm. is it, it uh, and and I hadn't read this book in um in such a long time that I thought oh maybe does it end that Death is actually doing all of this intentionally and that he's manoeuvring his duel with Mort around to the places to knock over particular hourglasses and that will kind of reorder reality in such a way to make Kelly surviving and Mort surviving fine. Um, but that isn't the case. They just kind of like, they just sort of leave it undressed. And uh, I did think like, um, while I like, I don't begrudge Mort and Isabel their happy ending, I did think the business of like, oh, I just had a word with a god and it's grand mm. was like a bit of a cop out. You know, it wasn't quite as bad as as Equal Rights' really truncated ending, but I thought like it was, it was a bit of a disappointment after all that had come before it, like for the... It is a little bit, but I think it, it fits into the theme of it, you know, how death is, you know, he's finding his humanity... And then he's, um, you know, eventually he's like, no, I need to accept this as a duty. But that doesn't mean he has to give up his entire humanity. He can still empathize, even if, like, he does his duty. And in this, this is one case where, um, this is one case where he says, right, I'm going to do this last thing for someone. You know, no, I, no, sorry. You know what? I'm yeah. rambling. I'm, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> okay. That thought. <laughs> we tend to do a lot of that in this podcast. Mm. Um, yeah, but I, I just thought, like, you know, uh, probably, I was probably partly disappointed because I had that thought when I was reading the jewel that, like, oh, this is how it's going to work out. Like, I could vaguely remember. I'm like, Mort survives and he's a mm. duke somewhere, and you know, it's like, <laughs> oh, this, you know. But I, I just thought it was like um, because he sort of um, really like developing the all his conceptual stuff about you know belief working reality and how you know he has the, the like the different teams of of the book kind of uh you know showing them and different like being able to display them in subtle ways and you know direct ways sure that it just kind of like it felt like a disappointment that he couldn't find you know some way of like uh morton Isabel surviving that that he couldn't just work it in with a lot of the other stuff he was doing you know it, it just comes sort of comes out of the blue mm. and kind of you know it, it just from a narrative point of view it sort of takes away from a bit of the drama particularly like in in this book it's 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 not quite as bad because it's sort of more story as much as his debts mm. but knowing that like going forward death will be the focus of more of the books it's like well if you can just do this if you can just go to a god and you know reorder reality like where's the potential for any kind of drama um but yeah it's just uh like I, i'm not you know gonna i'm not gonna like uh ever like um completely denigrate the book and i just thought it was it's sort of it's certainly the most disappointing part of what was otherwise like a really really terrific book mm. sorry i just realized that it's an actual deus ex machina oh yeah and it's not that often that you see yeah <laughs> yeah it really is <laughs> like maybe that was a that was a very subtle pawn you have to, <laughs> to work in <laughs> But that said, you're you're right. Like it, it, there is so much build up, and then it's it's all resolved with one line that happens off screen, off page. Mm. That is marginally disappointing. Mm. But it's a Deus Ex Machina, and yeah. I don't see a lot of those, so I'm no. okay. <laughs> yeah, I agree that it is disappointing, but it could be a lot worse because, like, it fits in thematically. I, I let it slide. Yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to see. I know he he said a lot of the time he doesn't. He, he said he didn't know what 
endings his endings will be when he begins a lot of the books mm. and i wonder like particularly in the early ones before it just became you know such a massive success he could probably do whatever he wanted um whether he was working under some very strict word count because that really really <laughs> seems like in, in this and equal rights in particular like you know it's just a certain point he's like oh because um yeah like, like equal rights that or equal rights ending rather is more like is more sort of you know compressed and unsatisfactory because of that this is less so but this one feels like you know the book could have been longer and just as satisfying or more satisfying you know and it's a kind of puzzle as to like you know why we're just kind of pulled up short right at the end yeah, i honestly haven't noticed i think i don't put a lot of I think I don't put as much value on the endings of Terry Pratchett's novels mm-hmm. so much mm. as I think it's probably because I put so much stuff because I love so much the way he writes and that I'm laughing every five pages that it's more about the style of writing and the entire book throughout mm. and, and the character development that I can't really remember the specific endings of a lot of books. I just remember mm. the basic people that are in it, the things that happen and my favorite lines. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of the same. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel too bad. Um, I, I feel bad like putting you know putting too much weight on an ending because ultimately it is just like an ending it's just a part of the book like a beginning or you know any, any kind of a part of it but uh yeah it, it, it detracts a little for me not a lot but just mm. like you know it would be kind of like if i'm gonna if i'm gonna raise any issues with mort that's it um oh if you want to raise an issue with mort <laughs> i noticed that Terry Pratchett... fights <laughs> just the one um there's too much death in it there's not enough. <laughs> it should be longer. Well, that's I wanted to get out this story, but for anyone who hasn't heard, this was one of the f- uh, well prior to the Corky Hall animated adaptations of Soul Music and Weird Sisters or the Sky live action an- uh, adaptations of Hogfather and the rest. Mort was, they were in talks with some American film studio to make a film of Mort. Um, and I think it, to, to paraphrase Pratched himself, they ran the idea by in focus groups in places like Power Cable, Idaho, like centers of cultures like that, and got back to them and said, yeah, the whole thing's pretty great, but the, the one problem is, is that uh, well, you got to lose this whole death angle. <laughs> and he just, uh, just, you know, I think he hung up at that point and never, never pursued it. It could actually pr- work as a Western if you think about it. <laughs> Get out. Uh, we're not going to take it. It actually could, though. If you think of death as like, you know, the grizzled old cowboy who's like done everything and like he's uh... the book is called Mort's team <laughs> not cowboy fun hour <laughs> a western indeed honesty uh, I'm sorry Ross what were, what were you saying oh yeah I was picking a fight <laughs> why I oughta um, no it was just um, what we've talked about previously where Jerry Pratchett inserts you know references to real life books or real oh, life characters yes. or sort of takes you out of the book for a minute this is kind of my least favorite one but there's only one in this book and i probably wouldn't have noticed it if we hadn't had that conversation mm-hmm. on the last podcast but there's this bit where uh where kelly is talking to cutwell and it's when cutwell finds out that uh, who she is and she hires him as a royal recognizer and he goes royal and she goes you're a wizard i think there's something you ought to know said the princess there is said death and then in brackets, they start going, that was a cinematic trick adapted for print. Beth oh, wasn't yeah. actually talking to the princess. Yeah, yeah. He was actually in a study talking to Mort, but it was quite effective, wasn't it? It's probably called a, fo- a fast dissolve or a cross-cut slash zoom or something. An industry where a senior technician is <laughs> called a best boy might call it anything. Yeah, yeah. That's so specific to film industry. It's so 
the other thing is it's I actually had that exact same point. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it seems yeah. so out of place to bring in cinema, to bring in visual cuts hmm. to a novel and, and to at the same time remove the reader from a book and make them start thinking about filming techniques. <laughs> I, I did I did chortle it out at that point but you're right it was one of those jarring bits I get the feeling like that's that's a line he came up with just like in isolation and had mm. to get it out somewhere you know yeah. um, which I sympathise with yeah, actually yeah I, I, I definitely I know I know the feeling alright um, there's one more line now this uh, this is a little out of you know context I probably should have brought it up earlier but just one more line or thing that I really liked. You know, the the whole sandwich thing, you know, mm-hmm. how it's a recurring thing. There's another line that he uses twice and I feel it's really effective in portraying how lonely death is. It's when um, Mort is uh, taking the soul of the witch and he says, I've never done this before. He says, well, I've never died before. We can learn together. Yeah. And then Cutwell, or Cutwell and the princess use the same line. He says, I've never been crowned. Well, I've never crowned anyone. We can learn it together. Uh, yeah. and it's like, you know, it's all about, you know, we can do this together. And like, death is just on the outside of that. That's one way of looking at it. There's probably more, but that's how I view it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's... There's a lot of, you know, we can do this together. You know, we can help each other, but death doesn't get that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point. Like, mm. I, like a big part of the book is that like kind of uh, like people learning their way through, you know, new experiences for the first time and how kind of terrifying it is when you don't have any instruction or experience but that you've got to do it anyway and like as i said like that's completely outside of that and it's like in this book he's like trying to find new experiences yeah and every single yeah. time like he's reaching out to people and they all feel really uncomfortable mm-hmm. helping with it like the bartender who's like i'll take your money but you're weird and there's yeah. the guy in the conga line who sobers up while talking to him <laughs> which is great kicking uh, uh abstractly that's uh that's fun <laughs> It's a conga. It's a conga. <laughs> I thought it was a conga. <laughs> That's not a normal thing to happen at a party. <laughs> well, it should be. <laughs> Sorry. It actually took me like several thought processes to figure out what was going on in that scene. I was like, why does anybody have their hands on anybody else's hips? I love why her. is anybody kicking? There's oh, a, it's a can-can. There's Sorry. a bit leading up to that that I just love. It says they've gone through most of the rooms in like uh, the patrician's palace and taken up like a cook, a servant, and one very confused burglar. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely love that line. <laughs> um... Okay, well, yeah, I, I was about to, to plow on to our listing, but is there is there any points on more you guys wanted to wanted to uh, get out before we go? Anyway. All I have left is like one or two lines that I really like, but I'm sure bang them out there. Well, I throw them out there. Yeah, yeah. There's one I like. Uh, just uh, I think this feeds in. Do you know how Terry Pratchett is often loved by um, people like us who you know. At one point in our lives, we probably would have called ourselves random. <laughs> oh, God. I shudder looking back at that point now. There's a, there's a line where Death says, what is this feeling when you're, what was it, not enjoying what's happening or whatever. But anyway, the line is, I am sadness. Yeah. I feel like that's something people say a lot now. <laughs> like, you know, just in general, like on Twitter, oh, I am sadness. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like that, that sort of language of the internet of people mm. like 
ironically but kind of not ironically really overstating their feelings on things yeah and quite often yeah. you see pictures of sad cats or kittens doing yeah, that yeah, yeah. Oh. like that as well wow. yeah. oh my god Terry Pratchett predicted the internet <laughs> we're gonna um, get this cat on more often <laughs> there was another line that I really liked oh actually this is also about cats in a way um, <laughs> this is again the scene with uh, where uh, Mort takes the soul of the witch which I really think is like one of the best scenes in the book even though it doesn't really feed into the narrative um, where she kisses him on the cheek, and mm-hmm. he says, "Only the ki- when she blows away, only the kiss was left, just like a Cheshire cat, only much more erotic." <laughs> <laughs> and the last one, which means nothing, but the great line is when Albert's talking about princesses, and he says, "Oh yeah, they can pee through a double dozen mattresses." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then Mort later finds out what it actually is. Oh, <laughs> I'm glad Albert was wrong, because yeah. <laughs> that would be some pee. <laughs> Absolutely. That's uh, all right. Okay, so there, remain. Uh, we, we've, um, before we, before we rank Mort in our ever-growing list of what the best disc world books in the entire multiverse are, uh, we've constructed a smaller list. And at Steve's suggestion, in honor of this being the first death book, it's our list of top ten anthropomorphic personifications in the disc world. So, uh, Rose, you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, number ten, we have Veruca Gnome. Yeah. Um, not very pleasant, but you know, like uh, kind of rampant in in gyms and shared communal bathrooms <laughs> everywhere across the world. Steve, you want to give us number nine? And then number nine, we have Time herself, mm-hmm. mother of Jeremy slash uh, Lobsang, who featured in last week's list. Uh, mm. Number eight, we have the the new death. Oh, um, is, yeah, an yeah, unpleasant character, but a, but a pretty pretty cool bad guy. I really um, like actually in um, that's in Reaper Man, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a bit where he's seen on a hilltop riding atop a skeletal horse, and that's where you have the little bit at the bottom of the page where Death talks about how he tried the whole thing before. It's just yeah. I can't remember specifically. I remember there's a bit where he said the head kept falling off. It's just really really <laughs> funny. So Hemming, great line. And number seven, oh, number seven, we have the Grim Squeaker. Yeah. Yay. The death of rats. Him. Mere yes. death of rats outranks the new death. <laughs> <laughs> you can take your crown, buddy, and you can shove it. Yeah. You know the Grim Squeaker would win in a fight. That's true. Uh, <laughs> number six, we have uh, three of the five horsemen <laughs> of the apocalypse. That's right, they're five. As uh, famine, war, and pestilence, who have a great bridge game, I think Yeah, you said. a bridge game in Life Fantastic, and yeah, then you get I hammered together in sorcery. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, War has a nice daughter called Clancy. <laughs> <laughs> Number five, um, I should let you take this one because it was, it was your particular suggestion. But it's the Scissors Man from Hogfather. It's a wonderfully like uh, scary. He is of, genuinely yeah. a horrific. Cr- I don't think you see him, do you? No, you, never see you don't. Him. And that's he's just in. No, actually, it's not even him. It's the closet that he's in. Yeah, remember that? That do you remember that? Yes, that's yeah. terrifying. It's oh, because ev- everyone has a closet they've been scared of as a kid. Yeah, really, really kind of plays up those those childlike fears. And uh, number four is Hogfather from the Discworld's equivalent of Christmas, which is Hogs Watch Night. Hogs Watch. What's the book called? He's in Hogfather. Oh, <laughs> the character's called Hogfather. The book's called Hogfather. What? <laughs> think, yeah, like what's his his four pigs, Gouger, Tusker. Oh yeah. And, like they Hideous. beat they beat Rudolph and the rest of the gang. <laughs> They'd eat any, Rudolph. any day twice <laughs> on Sunday. I just remember that line from Hogfather. I saw your piggy do a wee and I used to repeat that incessantly because <laughs> I just thought it was a really funny childish line. Anyway, number three is the Tooth Fairy. 
who is also really creepy. I, I think I voted for all the creepy ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although we, well, I suppose we'll discuss it when we get to Hogfighter right down the line, but that backstory of like the bogeyman adopting himself into becoming a tooth fairy is, uh, mm. is really good. Um, uh, number two is Chaos, the fifth horseman, Ronnie Soak, the milkman. <laughs> um, yeah, he is... Uh, the one who left before they became famous, the peak best <laughs> of the four horsemen. Should we say the last one all together at the same time? We all know who number one is. If you've read Discord and you don't know who number one's going to be, well, there's there's no there's no hope for you. Number one is death, death of course, and we can tell you why, but you should know why after listening to the preceding <laughs> hour I was talking about this book. Yep. So then, their butt remains for us to rank Mort, and basically for any, any first-time listeners, I doubt there will be any, it's basically that myself and Rose are constructing a list of, of the best, but more more appropriately, our favourite yeah. Discworld books as we go along. So right now that list is only three books long, because we've addressed the three books, mm-hmm. and we'll fit each book into the list as we go along. So right now, the, as the list as it stands is number three, Colour of Magic, number two, Equal Rights, and number one, Life Fantastic, and where do you think this is going to fit, Rose? Number one, number one, number one. Number I feel one. very strongly yeah. that this mm-hmm. surpasses all of them by 10 miles. Number one with a bullet. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, Personal I'm, opinion, sorry, feel free to disagree. No, no, I, I, I absolutely and vehemently agree. Um, uh, Steve, you're not, a, you're, not, you're not a full-time member. You're, I suppose, uh, like a second Oh, sec- do I not count then? Class, sorry, I'll just you're, leave. You're a second-class citizen. Like, you know, uh, where were you to somehow attain, attain rights? Uh, where would you place this book <laughs> equal right? so far um, yeah obviously this is number one and I can save you time you don't need to complete this list because it will always be number one. Oh, oh well, no I'm sorry but it will be we, we'll, is... we'll see about that actually there's there's one only a couple of books down the line I think might, might trouble it for me but uh, but we'll see guards, when we guards. get there yeah, we'll, we'll see when we get there uh, I don't like the magicians and tricks you know um, and anyway until next time thank you very much for listening uh, if you if you have any any issues with anything we said any comments any else you can uh, get Colin's a racist <laughs> we're not inviting him back no, no, no. no. <laughs> you were doing so well Steve due to popular demand Steve is a permanent fixture on this podcast <laughs> due to causing trouble the podcast is <laughs> yeah. abandoned <laughs> In any case, if you want to harangue us for taking Steve on board, uh, you can get in touch with us at Facebook or Twitter. Just look up Radio Morpork, or you can email us at radiomorpork at gmail.com. You can find our website where we have all this. Now that you're probably already on it, is radiomorpork.wordpress.com. So uh, thanks very much for listening, guys, and we'll see you all next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.